Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, talk about spring fever. The S&P 500 surged 11% in 11 days, erasing most of its loss for the year. And this even as the bond market carried on with its antisocial behavior, with 10-year rates hovering near the highest level in three years and a crucial part of the yield curve flirting with inversion. And obviously that's causing everyone to freak out about whether that signals a recession is on the horizon. So what's it all mean? Was this just a bear market bounce or has normal service been restored to the bull market in stocks? We'll get into it with a veteran fund manager. Uh, but first of all, Don, I need to know, speaking of spring fever, are you are, are you experiencing any spring fever? I would really like the spring to arrive in New York City, right? We haven't really seen it yet. It's been like 30, 30 degrees for the past week. I know. It doesn't quite feel like spring uh, just yet. I got to say, there's a woman in my neighborhood, a young woman, who the minute the sun comes out, she's out there sunbathing in her oh, bathing really? suit. It's like 40 degrees out and she's sunbathing. This is New Jersey after that all. Would so, only, you know. I was going to say that would only happen in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Or but Florida, I, Florida, possibly. You maybe know? Florida, yeah. But they wouldn't have to wait for a 40 de- no, degree day. You're right. I'm just worried she's going to have the first simultaneous case of frostbite and sunburn ever, ever <laughs> discovered. I'm, I'm worried about it. So, maybe she's well, going for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. S- s- setting a new uh, entry into the Journal of American Medicine or something like right. that. Right, yeah. The Guinness Book of World Records. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to. I do want to bring in our guest this week. I want to welcome David Bianco. He's the Chief Investment Officer of the Americas at DWS Group. Thanks so much for joining us, David. Thank you. Hello, Vidalia. And hi, Mike. Hi, David. It's great. It's great to have you. And I really just want to start out broadly speaking. I was hoping you would just lay out your strategy for us and how you're making sense of the market, what you're preferring, what you're not preferring right now. Well, laying out the strategy broadly, I, I guess, uh, as, as Mike said, I, I would try not to get frostbite and sunburn at the same time. That sounds like <laughs> a skin injury. Um, it's, it's a difficult market right now. You don't know if you're going to get burned by inflation or get frozen by a recession, although I don't expect a recession in the, you know, this year or so. We're quite concerned about the longevity of this cycle. Um, I feel as if this cycle has aged quickly. 
Uh, it's aged mostly from uh, very high inflation, much earlier than you typically see in the first couple of years of a new economic expansion. The causes, as everybody knows, it's the pandemic, uh, the supply chain disruptions from that, uh, the really strong uh, monetary and fiscal response and, and having to pay back some of that. Um, and, then, and then the war that broke out with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So we're worried about inflation. We're worried that the Fed might try to fight inflation too quickly or too aggressively. That could bring a recession earlier than necessary. But I'm just concerned in general about the way inflation is eroding the purchasing power of consumers in the United States. And inflation at these levels with this type of volatility and associated uncertainty, it begins to disrupt the effectiveness of the economy. It, it disrupts price signals. And when price signals are distorted, manufacturers, consumers, capital allocators, we all begin to make bad decisions. And I'm concerned that this, uh, this economic environment is one where the risks are high and it's difficult to navigate it. Don't want to get sunburned, don't want to get frostbite. So uh, trying to pick, pick some, some uh, safer investments. And I'm happy to talk about that as we continue our chat. I like the wordplay a lot. Yeah, I, I didn't realize my crazy neighbor would turn into an extended metaphor for the, uh, <laughs> the current, current state of play in the markets. This is great. I, uh, hopefully, she doesn't listen to this and come uh, uh, and come burn me about something. But, but David, I, you know, I mentioned in that intro, you know, when you see a bounce like this in the market, um, every know-it-all on Wall Street comes out of the woodwork to say, you know, the biggest bounces uh, often occur in bear markets. And that's true to some extent. I mean, it, yes, very often these these really fierce rallies that we look at, you know, when you go back to look at, well, when was the last time we saw an 11% move in 11 days? It, it usually is in the middle of the bear market, but but not always. But is that thought crossing your mind at all? Like, uh, you know, that the, the, this could be sort of a counter trend rally that we saw in, in March. Um, are you worried that we'll revisit those lows uh, or maybe even set some new lows for the year? Volatility is elevated. So we, we've expected volatility to be high this year. It's playing out. And when you have volatility, you tend to get it more to the downside. Um, but when you've got big declines, as we, as we had, um, certainly since uh, the, the outbreak of the war, you, you can get a big rally. And just as you're asking, the question is, what from here? My view is the S&P is more likely to return to something like 4,000 before it breaks to new highs, uh, such as 5,000. 5,000 is not totally out of reach, but it, to me, it's something more of a 2023 um, uh, target rather than this year at this stage. So I don't think it's a dead cat bounce, but uh, this cat's injured, and I don't think this cat can you know, bounce higher from here. And David, I think you actually recently cut your target on the S&P 500, so I wanted to ask you what your thinking was behind that. Well, we cut our target twice. Uh, so far this year, uh, we, we went into the year with a 5,000 target for the S&P 500 at the end of this year. As I just said, I'm thinking that's more appropriate uh, for the end of 2023 at this stage, maybe a little bit higher if inflation finally does come back down close toward the Fed's 2% target. But we cut our target from 5,000 to 4,800 in mid-February on very high inflation and that you know, causing us some concerns. And then uh, all of our the fuel being added to the inflation fire uh, with the invasion. So then we cut again 
uh, to 4,600 on the S&P. What we've tried to explain is that we only slightly trimmed our S&P earnings estimates. We went into the year with a $228 S&P earnings estimate for 2022. We trimmed it to 225. I do think there's a little bit of risk to the downside of that 225, but we try to convey that we were raising our estimates at the energy sector by three or $4, but trimming it everywhere else by about six bucks. And I think there's still, you know, remains to be seen how well uh, the consumer sectors, the manufacturing uh, part of the S&P will weather this uh, high, high costs of production and high costs now of, of consumption. You know, David, I was uh, I noticed you are overweight banks, which I find interesting. Uh, notes you sent us over before the podcast. Uh, you wrote that we think the Fed fighting inflation with rate hikes is good for banks, even if the curve goes flat or slightly inverted. I want to unpack that a little bit. I mean, to me, I guess the big question is uh, on a lot of people's mind is that notion of deposit beta. You know, if, if the Fed lifts interest rates, if short term rates uh, rise in response, banks won't necessarily raise those deposit rates right away. Um, you know, and, and I'm curious how you're thinking about that. It, it seems like in the last rate hike cycle, we saw that 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 banks were very, very reluctant to raise deposit rates. Um, they're not exactly competing for deposits these days. They, they have plenty of them. Is that is that part of your thinking or is yeah, there something it, else it, about it banks, that- the banks? The banks are flush with cash. And uh, the evidence of that is simply the reserves that the banks are holding at the Federal Reserve. So first, as the Federal Reserve raises rates, banks will earn higher interest immediately on the reserves they, they have at the, at the Fed. And uh, it, it's gone from zero uh, to 25 basis points. And you know, the Fed seems pretty committed to hike rates uh, six more times this year, every remaining meeting. It remains to be seen if they slip in a couple of 50 basis point hikes, but immediately that boosts the net interest margins at the banks. And to the extent that they are uh, needing to pass some of that forward to the deposit base, as you said, it, it looks to me that the biggest banks have so much excess uh, cash that they will unlikely be raising uh, rates as fast. You could think of the deposit beta as probably, it's going to be below one, probably 0.5. I, I have a feeling that it's not just, uh, there'll be a long lag as well. So what you need to keep in mind is that net interest margins are, are not the only part of bank profitability, but they've been the very depressed part of bank profitability. And I, I see that finally going in the right direction, uh, because the Fed is raising rates to fight inflation, and therefore we think that banks can be a better inflation protection play than most people give them credit for. But what's key here is that when you look at energy and oil, people think, well, that's maybe a more obvious inflation protection play, particularly of geopolitical risks. But you have to ask yourself the question, how sustainable is oil at these levels? Whereas I think the increase in interest rates, there'll be plenty more to come and we are finally just moving into more normal interest rates. So it's, it's a move upward uh, in earnings, but a move upward in also sustainable earnings at the banks. Whereas energy, yes, they're gonna be very profitable under these conditions. Let's see how long that lasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So speaking of the yield curve and the inversion, that was obviously one of the big stories this week. So I I have a Reagan special. I have a two-part question, so it's going to be lengthy, but not as lengthy as Reagan's questions usually are. But I wanted to ask you about you the should, seemingly... You work com- on that, Valdana. You should... You I'll work on it. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you about the seemingly conflicting signals in the stock market versus the bond market. And then the thing that everybody is uh, wondering about is, is this time different in terms of the yield curve inversion? Well, I, I would just jump into saying the, the yield curve is, is an important indicator. We watch it, watch it all the time. Uh, but it, you know, it, its effectiveness is just not as strong as 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 it's fabled to be. Um, in fact, the yield curve, uh, not it, it has been wrong. Uh, it's been wrong each of the long cycles uh, in the United States in the 1960s, in the 1980s, in the 1990s. We had flat to inverted curves on the 10-year yield to overnight rate, or even the three-month bill rate, which is the part of the curve that we watch. Some people debate this. I think of the two to 10-year part of the curve is more about term premiums. But when you look at the overnight rate relative to 10 years, you're getting more of, a, of an economic signal. And you're also getting the impact of what the Fed's doing to the economy immediately uh, with the Fed funds rate. So I look at the 10-year yield minus the Fed funds rate. And the curve um, went flat to inverted in, in 1966, uh, 1994. Uh, and 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 it, it, we, we had an economic expansion that continued. It also happened in 1984. And um, what's interesting about that is that of the ten times that the curve has really gone flat or clearly inverted, three of the times it was wrong. We had economic expansion for several more years, and the seven out of ten times it was right, 70% of the time, it still took one or two years for a recession to hit. So it's a useful indicator, but it's a it's not infallible. And I think of it as being just about as accurate as simply the length of the economic cycle. And you know, we always have this mental model of how long should a U.S. expansion be? We've, I have moved and most of us have moved from thinking economic expansions on average or typically from five to seven years can be 10 years or longer. Um, but you know, we've shortened our expected lifespan of this cycle given the inflation problems. So just as the cycle ages is as much of a prediction of, its, of the next recession as is the, the inversion of the curve, recessions happen. That's why the yield curve is right. Recessions just eventually 
typically happen, but they don't happen um, in a short time frame after yield curve inversions. And the curve has been wrong, I would say, 30% of the time. You know, Vildana, just because I know you're wondering, no, I do not remember the inversion of the 1960s, if, 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 if you're wondering. <laughs> I was wondering, yeah, well, and and yeah. and the one he mentioned before that, the 1930s, and yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. 1800s, yeah. yeah, about that too, because you know, in, in 1966, uh, <laughs> Fed Chairman William McChasey Martin was really aggressive with inflation at the time, and he hiked aggressively, and there was actually a brief bear market um, for the S and P 500. But uh, he hiked and then he, he eased off, cut a little bit, and we had economic expansion to 1970. So not only was the curve wrong uh, during 1966, but there was a soft landing in 1967. There was also a soft landing in 1985 after the 1984 hiking, which was kind of Volcker's you know, last word to markets of, don't think I'm not going to fight inflation if it comes again. And then 1994, which is the dreaded year to all bond investors of, of a bond bear market, well, the Fed did stop eventually and, and pulled back a little bit, and uh, the, 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 the economy continued to expand all the way through the late 1990s. So I hear people say all the time, the Fed has never engineered a soft landing, but it has engineered a soft landing in each of the long cycles, just as the curve is wrong about the Fed's ability to engineer a soft landing in those long cycles. I actually wanted to ask you about that too, because I think we heard a new phrase this week. One of the Fed members called it a safe landing. So I wanted to ask you what, what probability you put on a soft landing or safe landing <laughs> this time around. Yeah, fair, fair question. I mean, you know, soft landing versus crash landing, soft landing versus turbulent, bouncy, you know, kind of you get off the plane, thank God I survived that flight. We've all had, many of us have had one of those. Uh, it's going to be bouncy. And I, I think the Fed knows that. I think they're concerned as the, 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 the pilot here. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why they're talking so hawkishly is that they, they probably figure the more hawkishly they speak, hopefully the less hawkish they need to act. So, you know, I, 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 and I, you know, I, I welcome their hawkish speak. I welcome their uh, fight against inflation. And again, it's good for the banks. Uh, I just hope they don't push too hard because I don't know that they can bring inflation down as fast as they would like it to, given the external factors like oil prices, geopolitical conflict driving inflation um, so high and above their target. It doesn't mean inflation needs to stay at 7 8%. It can work its way down toward the Fed's target, but it's going to take time for the inflation to get back to the 2% target. And I don't think the Fed should rush it. I think the Fed should just take actions that ensure it's trending the way they want it to trend. Yeah, David, I wanted to uh, jump overseas a little bit and talk about Asia because I know you are overweight uh, Asia. And boy, talk about a roller coaster when it comes to China. You know, not too long ago, everyone was saying this market is simply uninvestable. Uh, there's too much regulatory risk, too much policy risk. And then, boy, that that turned out to be sort of the wrong take in the short term. I, it, it must be keeping you up at night watching uh, watching that Chinese market. But how are you thinking about China specifically, you know, now that Shanghai is locking down? Um, uh, in your notes, you point out, you know, we're not quite sure if if China's on our side or the Russian side. They're trying to be Switzerland in this. And, and who knows where what directions that that's going to go. But how are you thinking about China right now? Are you, are you bullish? 
Oh, I'm bull- yes, uh, <laughs> I'm overweight it. Uh, yeah. and, and it is still a small part of our asset allocation portfolios, but we are overweighted. And I, I guess I would say maybe my conviction doesn't align with the, with, with the overweight, um, the, the, the amount of the overweight. But our, our, our view has been that it, it's worth the weight, it's worth the turbulence, as long as China shows us that they're you know, with the West uh, rather than doing something that's against the West. And it's not just a matter of, you know, will they be a, um, a good player in the, world, uh, in, in the world community, but will they also give, you know, some freedom to, to their entrepreneurs and their big leading private companies, their tech companies. And, and, and I think this is an economy that needs more innovation to address its challenges. And, um, and, 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 and usually free markets and entrepreneurs help you figure those things out. So, when it comes to China, we went into the year thinking that one kind of conciliatory speech from Xi Jinping to the world and, and to investors would get that market rallying really strongly. Uh, but you know, the market fell more than we expected. And finally, we got a little bit of a conciliatory speech from Hu Li, um, uh, sorry, Lu, Li Hu. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, 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 and ever since the Chinese market has, has had a nice strong bounce off the bottom, but it still had a, had a tough year and, and down a lot from the highs. What we're doing from this point on is, is watching whether China gets distances itself more from Russia. I think if China's scared straight by the way the West reacts to unacceptable behavior out of Russia, if China reacts you know, the right way to that, that should help Chinese equities. And uh, if, if they show that, they're, that they really value uh, their free markets and their and their their, their companies, uh, then I, I think those equities have a long way to climb upward because they're at such steep discounts given the quality of the businesses that they've got, um, particularly their technology type businesses and digital consumer type businesses. There are big big discounts to the comparable businesses out of the United States, and the thing about China is it's like Texas; everything's just bigger. So if they don't repress these businesses, They've got a world of potential, and they can really help China find solutions to their challenges. What about here at home? What sorts of things do you like at home? I think when I was reading your notes, you like tech and communications. And also at the same time, what do you not like? Well, we're basically equal weight on on tech and a little overweight on communications. And that's the big part of the S&P 500. I mean, the the S&P is a growth index. The S&P is a digital index at this stage. When uh, you add up the tech, the communication sector, internet retailing, and a, and a handful of other things you can find in other industries, um, you, you get 45% of the S&P being digital. So our, our view is a little tactically cautious, but long-term constructive, particularly if inflation can come down on the S&P and thus the same on technology. But my preferences are uh, healthcare banks, as we talked about. Uh, and healthcare is just an area where I find the valuations to be very on-demanding um, and, and not connected to interest rates at all. And we continuously see good sales and earnings growth coming out of the, the, the pharmaceutical companies and the biotech companies, particularly if you just lump them all together, because it's hard to even distinguish them anymore. They're all medicine makers, and they all have very enviable economies of scale and profitability, 
when they have a breakthrough and a, and, and a winner. And I'm optimistic on, on, on innovation. I'm just so encouraged by what uh, the medicine makers were able to do around the pandemic. And I think they've impressed themselves that they are more motivated to reach for um, more cures. And I think politicians need to understand that the medicine makers are part of the solution, not the problem. Healthcare is something we all need. It's going to cost more. And I believe if we let these healthcare companies uh, thrive and do what they do best without worrying about political interference or interference or price caps, that this sector can do extremely well the rest of this decade yeah. and longer. Well, well David, I, I know one thing you're not super excited about is housing. Um, a, a little worried about housing as, as rates go up. Uh, and I wanted to ask, you know, Obviously, if, if you're old enough and you hear a downturn in housing, you, you think back to 08, 09 and, and how vulnerable the financial system was to, to that crisis. Obviously, you know, I think the consensus is that it's, it's sort of, you know, in better shape to withstand any, any type of housing crisis this time. But still, I got to think that a housing slowdown is a pretty nasty drag on the economy. You know, I, I remember reading somewhere that I think it was Tom Lee at uh, Fundstrat. Uh, years ago said that every new house that's built is, you know, adds three jobs to the economy, something like that. Um, and, and who knows if that number is right. But but, yeah. but, yeah, but boy, it, I got to wonder about a, a cooling off of housing, if, if that's a major headwind of the economy. Is that is that sort of where you would center your attention to look for any any sort well, of vulnerability? The thing about housing is it's an important part of the U.S. economy. And uh and, and there's also a very important relationship between housing and interest rates. And it's not just how interest rates affect the value of housing. It's also how housing and the increase in the housing stock and the increase in the value of the housing stock has a lot to do with loan growth. So, you know, housing is something that any you know, economist thinking about GDP should think a lot about. And it also has a lot of influence on interest rates back and forth loan growth, uh, as well as being a big part of the profitability, loan growth and, and, and interest rates of banks. So when you're thinking about the economy and you're thinking about banks, uh, you should think about housing. But the S&P 500 has never been as sensitive to that. Uh, the S&P is a lot more sensitive to the digital economy. And it's also in, it's a big manufacturer and commodity producer. So what I'm getting at is our view on housing is kind of a, yeah, we expect it to slow down. And we expect it to actually slow down quite a bit in the areas of home goods and maybe even home improvement. Um, but I do think that, and, and existing home sales have slowed down a lot and I expect loan growth to slow down, but banks will still make more money on the interest rates as we talked about. I, I, I would just point out the nuances. I think new single family, new housing starts, I think they keep grinding higher. I think the prices of housing is at a level where it's still quite profitable for home builders to build homes. Uh, and I think they'll keep doing it. And uh, so I expect it to be volatile as we're going through rising interest rates and a lot of debates about where interest rates peak. So that's not great for home builders. But within the whole housing world, I, I'm comfortable with home builders. And I, I still like banks. I don't expect any kind of credit cycle. Uh, downturn, um, but I, I am cautious on on home goods and 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 and, and home um, improvement type retailers. Another story that made 
waves this week was the CEO of Restoration Hardware, which I think is just called RH now. But he, uh, on a conference call, he was saying that consumer spending was slowing and, and that there's demand destruction related to inflation. So I wanted to ask you to to look ahead and talk about what your expectations are for this coming earnings season and if you're going to be looking for those types of stories in terms of, you know, what's happening within corporate America. So we're, we're, we're going to go into to earnings season in, in, in a couple of weeks and um, it, it will almost certainly be as it always is that two-thirds of the companies will beat on earnings and maybe half on sales and companies that miss will get beat up really badly and the companies that beat will, will go up, but not as much as the ones that miss go down. That's just always the case. Uh, what I always try to focus on is the, the sequential growth. And I do believe that Q1 earnings, even beyond the seasonal effects, will be, will be below Q4. Q4 was about $55 S&P earnings uh, in 2021. And, I, and I, I don't think we do as well in, in Q1, uh, despite you know, improving earnings at the energy sector. And that's where it comes down to the mix of earnings. I think you'll start seeing this shift of earnings going into the energy sector, but coming out of the consumer sectors, the, the supply chain disruptions continuing at so many manufacturers, industrials, auto. Um, so I think it's not, it's not so much about a couple of things. It's not so much about, well, the earnings, you know, beat or miss, they'll be flattish sequentially. And I expect them to be flattish all the way to the fourth quarter of this year. And when I look at the earnings that I'm expecting for the end of the year, $58, $59 per share of the fourth quarter of 2022, I think almost all of that earnings growth on a year on year basis is going to be inflation. So we're finding that there's this shift in the earnings from you know, higher quality businesses to, dare I say, lower quality businesses, or at least the sectors that investors always put lower PEs on, like energy. And uh, even though the earnings are, are going to grind their way higher over the course of the year, it doesn't look like they're going to outpace inflation over the course of the year. Now, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> we'll take the inflation um, offset, but we, we tend to prefer real earnings growth and real returns on S&P investment and it might be a year of no better than just inflationary returns uh, on the S and P. Yeah, uh, you know, David, I know you're you're cautious about sort of a slowdown in consumer spending, uh, which I think makes sense given you know the higher prices for fuel and food and and all the staples. Um, I'm curious how you're thinking about. If you're any, if you're thinking at all about sort of the retail spending on stocks themselves, because I, I'm guessing for a guy like you, it must have been kind of, uh, I don't know if frustrating is the word or, or aggravating to, to watch this whole Reddit phenomenon uh, develop and see these sort of junk stocks just going crazy because they're, they're getting pumped on social media. I do think, though, there, there must have been some sort of halo effect for the entire market, though, when you have this new sort of speculative uh, mass of people just buying, you know, with both fists, whatever they can. Um, is that a headwind to the market, too? Just the, you know, sort of a lack of, of dry powder in, in your average person's Robin Hood or, or E-Trade account to, to just go speculate? Is, is, is that ultimately a headwind to the yeah, market, I, you think? It's a good question. And, you know, it, it has been frustrating, maybe for no other reason other than it's hard to predict 
what those those investors are going to do, what they're going to value, what 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 stocks, what causes they're going to support. I mean, there are certain companies, electric vehicle makers, where you think to yourself, this ownership base is really enthusiastic about the mission, and I kind of get that. And arguably, maybe they're willing to accept a really low, you know cost of capital or long-term return on capital. Hard to know because they've made a lot of money so far if they're really comfortable with low returns in, in, you know, in the future. But then you get these odd other type of causes like, let's just get this movie company some capital to go see if they can do something with it. So it is frustrating. As much as I welcome participation in the equity market, because I think the more people that participate and the more diverse views you bring, to capital markets, the more efficient they're likely to be, at least you hope. And then the thing I like about capital markets is that it's a, a dollar-weighted democracy, if you will. And often I scratch my head and I think to myself, particularly when you look at you know the bigger cap companies, how do these individuals have enough money to be swaying stocks as yeah. much as they might be? So just sharing some thoughts. I don't think I have any you know clear views on this one. If anything, I try to stay clear of stocks that look to me as if they're being, you know, swayed by the masses, not because the masses are wrong, but I'm having a hard time predicting, you know, how how their views might play out over time. Right. It it reeks of crowded trades and a a little bit too, I guess, to some degree. You know, it's just a little too sentiment. And while sentiment's important, it's really difficult to predict. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Bill Donna, you know what else is important? For us, at least. For, for us and our listeners, I believe. I, 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 believe I hope many, so. <laughs> many, many patiently awaiting for dun-dun-dun, the craziest things we saw in markets this week. I'm going to get us started um, okay. for once. Okay. Usually I save the best for last, but I, th- this time I'm uh, I'm gonna get us started. I wish everybody could see me rolling my eyes. <laughs> oh, they can see it. They can see it right through their headphones. The Wizard of Oz. I'm sure you've seen The Wizard of Oz, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, did you remember the Tin Man? Uh, mm-hmm. He carried around an oil can. So this is timely to today's market. The Tin Man had an oil can because he would rust up, and they would have to squirt some oil in him to, to keep him moving. Well, Cruise GSW Auctions just auctioned off that oil can from the movie 
the actual oil can, they do not, the, the story, and, and this is courtesy of TMZ, they don't tell us whether or not it was actually filled with oil. That might move the needle on the price, given given the current price of oil. But it's sold for auction, so it's time to play prices right. Uh, David, let's go with you first. What do you think the winning bid for the, the Tin Man's oil can was? Gosh, I'd like to see the, the, the certification of, of the authentic, authenticity. There's <laughs> some, you know, NFT. I, 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 oh, gosh. I mean, I'm not going to go. I, I mean, I could see how that. Hmm. I'm going to go with $20,000. 20000 I get a kick out of how seriously our guests take this. Uh, I, I, like, like their clients are going to be like, he didn't get the Tin Man's oil can right. How can I trust this guy, this guy with my money? Twenty thousand dollars, Valdana. What's your what's your bid for the Wizard of Oz Tin Man's oil can? And the rules are: if I'm if I'm over, then David wins, right? It, you know, if if you don't know the rules by now, I uh, I'm just laying them out again you for even David. To me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> closest to the pin. Closest to the pin. I'm gonna go with one fifty. One hundred fifty thousand. Yeah. One hundred fifty thousand. It's not bad. Yes. 250000 for for the Tin Man's wow. uh, oil can. I know. Mm. I'm with you, David. I, uh, who, <laughs> who pays for these things? I don't know. But I'll tell you this. Here's a better one. There was a violin that was played uh, that played on the Somewhere Over the Rainbow track from Wizard of Oz, a, a 308-year-old Stradivari violin. They think that's going to fetch $20 million, uh when it goes off up for auction this summer. So. Uh, you'd have to lever up that oil can to, to get the Stradivari, but those things I think go for that kind of money, no matter what. Those old violins, for, for I think reason. so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this one has the added bonus of having played somewhere over the rainbow on the Wizard of Oz. Anyway, Vildana, can you top that? Maybe, maybe <laughs> not. My my story is not a hundred percent markets related, but I thought you would really like it, and okay. our listeners would really like it. So. I'll, I'll make a markets connection, but we know Jersey City was in the news recently for basketball. Oh, yeah. The but did you know that they were also in the news because they're the first place to install a burger vending machine? A burger vending machine? Yes. So it's a company called Robo Burger. You order a <laughs> burger. You can use Google or App- Apple Pay to pay. You can get ketchup, mustard, all the accoutrements. It's ready in six minutes, and it comes out of the vending machine. And I, you know, it's the perfect place to test this, New Jersey, of course. So so they grill up the burger right there in the machine for you? The vending machine does, yeah. I, I mean, that's, I'm kind of surprised it took this long for that. Back in my day, I don't know, they used to have those uh, automat things where you'd go and you'd put the quarters in and open a thing. But that was some ham sandwich that sat there for like three weeks. This is, right. this is a this freshly is grilled fresh. burger. All right. Well, this I'm going to go try that that burger machine sometime. How much does yeah, the burger cost? Yeah. We should take a we should take a field trip. I don't yeah. remember what, how much it costs, but I just imagine this is going to. Yeah. I don't know how well it's doing in Jersey City, but it could potentially do well elsewhere. And then soon, this company will be more and more yeah. in the news. I would just hope that by now you would know the price discovery is important on that burger. I need to know. Yes, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. A burger vending machine. It's not at all markets related, but I but I'll allow it. I like once it. they're a public company. David, what are, for, what are you paying for? What are you paying for a Robo Burger? Just say, I mean, if that thing comes out quickly and tasty, I I think ten bucks for a Robo Burger just to watch it watch it happen <laughs> is pretty exciting. It's, it's seven dollars. <laughs> it's seven. It's six ninety nine. Six ninety nine. There you go. There's it's automation and activity yeah. right there, and I like the name. 
Um, Got to be some uh, big margin on the Robo Burgers. All right, keep an eye on that space. That's pretty good. How about you, David? You see anything crazy this week? I, I, it doesn't compare to anything like the Robo Burger or the, <laughs> or the <laughs> can. Um, one of the things that that surprised me a little bit uh, this week was over the past this week and the past few weeks, we've had such a big upward move in, in long term interest rates, and yet. This is the time that utilities decide to break out to all-time highs, um, and I like utilities. Uh, and you know, natural gas prices do help them, and I think it's a terrific bond substitute. But I wasn't expecting utilities to break out to all-time highs and deliver terrific returns, just as uh, bonds were taking a shellacking. So uh, a little bit of a surprise, but doesn't beat uh, the Robo Burger or, or the. <laughs> So, what, so you know, I did want to ask you about utilities. So what do you think is at play there? It's it, it's obviously not sort of a yield play, or, or is it? Is it a dividend yield play if, if you know, their well, yields aren't, you know? I think it is. I think it is. We, you have to keep in mind it may not be uh, a giant dividend yield, but dividend yields and earnings yields are real yields. You should get inflation protection. So if you compare the dividend yield um, to 10-year tips yields, which are still negative, uh, 40, 50 basis points still – that that is that is a lot better than 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 bonds and even and even tips, which do offer some you know, strong inflation protection. The other thing is that the government's committed to investing in the in the grid. Uh, the utilities will benefit from that. Natural gas prices tend to set the incremental price of electricity. Electricity prices will be going up, and that's going to be tough on consumers, but uh, good for utility companies. And uh, lastly, I just think, and this is going to take time. But uh, the utility industry, they own the key distribution for, for, for power. You know, we used to distribute energy as coal and a solid, then, you know, oil and liquid and natural gas is really important right now and energy as a gas. But the future is energy as a current and the currents go through the wires and the wires are owned by the utility companies. That's interesting. It, it, kind of your uh, low volatility, volatility play on Tesla and, and the EV makers of the world, I guess, in, in some extent. That's that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, well, David, uh, always uh, a real treat to, to catch up with you and, and hear what, how you're thinking about things. Um, really appreciate your time, and I hope we can have you back again uh, soon. Looking forward to it. Take care. Thanks for joining us. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Magnus Henriksen. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.